You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the Conservative Conscience. And welcome back to the Conservative Conscience here on the Westwood One Podcast Network at CRTV. And it is Wednesday afternoon, July 11th. And yes, yes, I am not in the greatest of moods, but I'm not in such a bad mood either. So take heart in that. Um, we just can't have nice things. We can't have nice things. Tremendously lost opportunity. Just just purely political. And what could have been done, I think, if they would have picked someone like Amy Barrett. Um, but, you know, the D.C. insiders, Anthony Kennedy, they all have their say. And uh, they wanted Kavanaugh, so we get Kavanaugh. Um, today I want to discuss, in order to just get to the bottom of why I I think it's kind of an underwhelming pick and it's not quite what we need at this moment. Not saying he's bad. I don't think he is bad at all. Um, But what, what we really need is to fully understand what's going on in the judiciary. And I know I've written a lot of articles on this, done a lot of podcasts on this, but I want to continue further on this theme today, speaking broadly about the judiciary, because frankly, nobody's doing this. You can't analyze a a Supreme Court pick if you don't fully understand what exactly is the problem in the courts, what we're looking to redress, and then how the pick will or will not help in that regard. Um, And then broadly, the fact that really ultimately we need to be doing a lot of other things that are more powerful and more needed both in the short term and the long run. And I want to tie into the broader fact that – you know, Republican nominees shouldn't be a matter of, oh, well, the Republican president picked him. We got a rally. We got a rally. You don't want the Democrats to win. No, I don't want the Democrats to win, but it doesn't mean that we shouldn't use the confirmation question to time to both urge our senators, the conservatives, to ask them certain questions and to ask those questions publicly, some of them at the confirmation hearing, and for it not to be a joke. And I think. This is really where Mark Levin was, for those of you who heard him last night. This was his point, that the confirmation process shouldn't just be for the left, their opportunity to slam the nominee, and then we just serve as, you know, pom-poming. I understand politically why you do that, but, you know, if we are going to say this is a lifetime appointment— And we're not going to fight back against the notion of judicial supremacy. If you haven't heard that show, hour and a half show from Monday, it's the last episode where I explain the difference between judicial review and judicial supremacy. But, you know, all of these guys who picked Kavanaugh, they don't they don't agree with me. Okay, you know, I I wouldn't care if it's anyone on the list if we were doing other things, if we're following Clarence Thomas's warning and ending universal injunctions for district judges, pushing back against them, ignoring some of them where appropriate, um, passing Louis Gohmert's bill to stri- strip the lower courts of jurisdiction, all sorts of mechanical things that we could do to, to change the structure of the judiciary, just like Congress could change the structure of the executive branch, which is even more powerful. And I want to discuss some of those tools today if we have time. So then, yeah, I mean – then the courts wouldn't be so damn consequential, and I wouldn't care as much about who the pick is. But you better believe I want an absolute everything, the best, if, if you're going to make it all about that for 30 years. And the problem is these same people are missing the boat. So I think it's appropriate for us to ask questions. Like, hey, you had a lot of good rulings. I know you're good on the libertarian issues, administrative law, guns. But, you know, there's some other problems we have, like I laid out and like Levin laid out last night, that we would like to know. You know, I remember last time Ben Sass and Ted Cruz joking around with Gorsuch at the confirmation hearing about rodeos. I mean, they literally threw away their questioning. 
they talked about basketball with with you know Byron White, the former justice who was um Gorsuch's boss, and he had basketball games in in the cham- you know after chambers hours. And it's cute, and it's and I understand they're trying to lighten it up because the Democrats were attacking the nominees. So they, but you know, don't throw it away. I I, I really want to give a shout out um, to Senator John Kennedy from Louisiana. He's kind of a funny guy, and I really think with with the right staff and the right movement, he could be very good. Um, I, I really give him a lot of credit. I didn't see it at the time last year, but ironically, it was actually with Amy Barrett and Joan Larson. Amy Barrett was the nominee for the Seventh Circuit, Joan Larson for the Sixth Circuit, and they had a joint confirmation hearing. And John Kennedy got up there and said, you know, I'm really not going to be well-liked for doing this, and I'm going to break with the tradition of, you know, when your party's president has a nominee, you just, you know, try to avoid all controversy and just be nice and smiles. But, you know, I really want to have a rigorous discussion over philosophy. And the point is, this is not just to um, this is not just to say that oh where do you stand on Obergefell where do you stand on Roe which type of precedent would you overturn I understand if they're not going to talk about that but I'm just saying we should be able to understand their general philosophy on certain constitutional clauses on concepts like substantive due process is that a real thing on 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 the role of the judiciary, the role of, of district judges, nationwide universal injunctions, the rules and procedures. We should be able to have some of these academic discussions. If you are the biggest scholar on law that's now going to be appointed to the Supreme Court, we, we should be able to get an idea on that. I don't understand why that's out of bounds. I don't mean like attack the guy like the way the left does, but I mean, you know, have a friendly conversation. You know, if he's such a scholar, which I'm sure he is, it would be a great, great for the country to have this discussion. Like, okay, you know, you're going to be on the Supreme Court. What do you think Congress's role in interpretation? What do you think about, you know, judicial supremacy and it being self-executing, universally binding? You know, what happens when the Supreme Court gets it wrong? I, I think these are discussions, you know, over and beyond, what do you think of Roe v. Wade? I think they're more fruitful and they shouldn't be out of bounds. So John Kennedy actually started to ask these questions. Now, the nominees wouldn't bite, but I give him a lot of credit. Um, And I'm actually going to make a note here to put this in show notes so you could see the video of him. I give him a lot of credit, and he's on Judiciary Committee now, and I look forward to him doing the same thing. And I think other members should be encouraged as well uh, to focus on this also. But anyway, I wanted to discuss today, by the way, our 250th episode, special day, why the D.C. establishment, the conservative political and certainly the conservative legal elites are missing the point on the judiciary. And we touched on some of this before, but I want to really hone in the point. Uh, Those of you who read my columns this week, a lot of this will be familiar to you. But you look at what's going on. And the backdrop of this Supreme Court fight is amazing. On the one hand, the left is going nuts and the right is celebrating that, oh my gosh, we're going to shift the court to the right, clearly to the right. And then this is just the beginning. We could have one or two more picks if you know Ruth Bader Ginsburg or Breyer you know, create a vacancy. And oh my gosh, we're we're headed to the promised land. And from the left, woe is to us. The right is going to establish fascism in this country. And what's so amazing is that as this is happening, the left in the lower courts is crushing us. And none of this is coming to the Supreme Court. And particularly on immigration, we're getting slaughtered, slaughtered. I mean, it's insane. Just totally slaughtered. They've mandated catch and release. I mean, I I need to put together a piece on this, but I know Judicial Watch has a huge expose on the number of criminal aliens that we've had coming over, the violent people that are coming over that the media will not report on. Um, DHS is putting out a lot of press releases on the, the gang members and drug smugglers and all sorts of bad people that we're catching. This stuff is irrevocable what the courts are doing. 
And we're going to go through them one by one. But what people need to understand here is between the legal profession, the legal culture, the groups that tee up the lawsuits, such as the ACLU, and the nature and structure of the lower courts and the trends that they're doing, when you put that all together, if you don't address some of those issues, it doesn't matter what you do with the Supreme Court, and particularly given that the type of people you're nominating are not quite Clarence Thomas, and that's going to be the point I'm going to hone in on today, why we need someone more in the mold of a total outsider who has no respect for the D.C. legal culture including the conservative one, in the mold of Clarence Thomas and not more in the mold of a Roberts and even in, to a certain extent Alito and Gorsuch. We, anything short of that, we're going to keep having this problem and why it's not going to work. I want you to understand you know, with this analogy, picture, you know, you know, picture a brain tumor. I, I certainly don't know much about the medical science with, with cancer surgery. But I know enough to know that the difference between removing 99% of a tumor and 100% is, is everything um, because you know you leave a little bit. Even if you take out – there's no such thing as, well, I took out most of it because you leave a little bit. It will grow back in short order and you know, depending on the form of cancer, sometimes it's, it's pretty immediate. Um, so it's, you almost got nothing for it. That's what's happening in the judiciary because of the aforementioned factors I just – Reference and that I've been referencing in my book, my columns, my podcast the last number of years. See, what happens is, in a nutshell, it's this mentality of let a thousand lawsuits bloom. So they'll hit let, – let's just use immigration as a case study. They'll hit the immigration issue. With a thousand frivolous lawsuits that should never have a shred of legitimacy, not just on the merits, but even on standing. Illegal is coming here. They're now getting standing to sue for um, for their miscarriages, blaming ICE for their miscarriages. Can you imagine that? They literally come over in the harshest of conditions under the hands and the thumb of the drug cartels, and they don't give a damn about their unborn baby. And often they're raped in the process, but then – when they come here, have a miscarriage, they blame it on ICE. Well, freeze frame. Either they demand get standing in the courts to abort the baby, or if the baby died on its own, then they blame us for the miscarriage. You know, it should never get off the ground, but yet they shot them all to the California judges, immediately get a ruling, get a universal nationwide injunction, and and – what happens is they do it in a circuit, within a circuit, the district within a, a circuit that they're automatically going to win the appeal. Let's just for now say the ninth, the fourth, and D.C. So at a minimum, it takes a year to two years and really often three, four, five, six years to get to the Supreme Court. So here's what happens. Out of a thousand of the cases, most of them never make it to the Supreme Court. They stand forever. That illegitimate ruling that the Supreme Court initially would never rule that way, but they're able to forum shop it to some rat whacked out judge and whacked out appellate court. They get a majorly devastating consequential uh, ruling for that, that under our current system where the other branches will not push back and they'll abide by it and abide by it universally. It, it literally creates irrevocable damage forever. Some other cases they'll take up after a few few years now some of them they'll engage it and kind of partly even uphold it a lot of them they'll overrule but only after a number of years and immigration is a good example because you know i remember we had um jennings v rodriguez the case that mandated bail hearings every six months for some really bad dudes there were a number of really bad criminal aliens that permanently got let go and disappeared in our population you can't you can't bring that back. So you see what I'm saying? Even if you get a little better Supreme Court with better, you know, better bent, 
it, it, around the margins, they'll maybe be a little bit more aggressive, take up some more of these cases. Grant Moore stays on this. But you can't fight a, a litigation mill of a thousand forum shopped lawsuits. You, you can't do that. Over time, they're going to win. But there's a step further. Even the cases where we ultimately get before the Supreme Court and ultimately win, this is where the analogy comes into place, and this is where Kavanaugh and the debate over the nominee on the right comes into place. There's no such thing as a win, as I've said many times. Some of it is because the left... And their legal culture allows them to always be more progressive than precedent, so they could always just keep moving along no matter what in other cases. But a lot of it is also the fact that even the good judges, they're beard strokers. This is the problem. They're not suitors. None of the FedSoc guys, the Federal Society ones, are going to be like suitors nowadays. But the problem is the severity of what we're dealing with now Just not being a suitor is not good enough. You downright need a Clarence Thomas for all the picks. And if you don't have it, you know, Daniel, don't you want 99%? Are are you a purist? No, but here's the difference. With with the political branches of government, I could take 99%. I could take 80%. Heck, I'll take 50%. But if we're going to continue this idea of judicial supremacy – where the other branches don't push back, where we don't even do the exceptions and regulations, the jurisdiction stripping, where we don't modify their procedures and the geographical jurisdiction and all the other tools we have to gum up the works and punish them and impeachment and whatever. The difference between 99% and 100% is the difference between ripping out 99% of the tumor and 100% of the tumor. Even the good judges, they beard stroke. So, for example, I have a, the ACLU comes before a lower court and says every Republican woman needs to be raped. So because these guys, A, always want to be judicious and fair-minded, unlike the left, they always view everything as like 50-50. Like, okay, this is a legitimate case. And they'll beard stroke. Well, okay, well, based on this precedent, uh, you know – Okay, do you have a claim on this? And of course, they're not going to rule in favor of them. But there's too much hemming and hawing, and you don't, they don't categorically rip it out to quote McConnell's lie on Obamacare, root and branch. They don't do it root and branch. Like Thomas does. You see on the travel ban, Thomas was like, you should never get standing. None of this is justiciable. Um, you know, there's no limits on the president's authority to. To, to keep people out. What are you talking about? This is ridiculous. And, and by the way, the lower court shouldn't be doing any of this. And no one signed on to that concurrence. It was just Clarence Thomas. That's what happens. They come back for more. They come back with another thousand lawsuits. Maybe the case is slightly different. So they could say, well, you hemmed and hawed. So you can't rape Republican women in this case. But here's another way of doing it. And rinse and repeat. Now the clock starts over again. It takes another one to two to five years, if ever, to get that in front of the Supreme Court. Let me explain to you what just happened. I wrote about this two weeks ago. In Town of Greece v. Galloway, we thought we had a pretty categorical ruling with Anthony Kennedy, wrote it five to four, that would finally shut down this assault on our bedrock founding history and tradition, Judeo-Christian values of prayer. That, that's not establishing a national religion. And Kennedy basically said very clearly, as long as you're not coercing anyone into prayer, which none of these cases ever do, it's always these people are like, I'm offended. I don't like what you're doing. Okay, like, what do you care? I mean, as you all know, I'm, I'm not Christian, I'm Jewish. So how does it hurt me that someone has a prayer to Jesus, Jesus at a at a county council meeting? Okay, so what? You know, like what the heck? Um, and, and that's that's what he ruled. So you'd think finally, after decades of this nonsense, it's over. No, they came back with a number of lawsuits, and they're winning all of them because they go to where they want. Even in the Tenth Circuit, they won a Ten Commandment case recently, and the Supreme Court won't take any of them up. So in this county in North Carolina. 
They couldn't pray. For four years it's been gummed up by the Fourth Circuit. And two weeks ago, the it's not just that they ignored it. The Supreme Court downright denied cert, denied the appeal. Clarence Thomas writes a, writes a dissent from denial of cert. It's like, I don't get what's going on here. I, th- I thought we, we solved this. This is a big problem. See what I'm saying? Now, to his credit, in that case, Gorsuch and only Gorsuch did sign on to Thomas's um, dissent. But notice we're far from getting five votes, certainly now, but I'd argue even with another pick, and especially if we're not going to try to, as much as we can, guarantee that they're really more in the mold of of um, of uh, Thomas and not Roberts or even not halfway in between. We you got to categorically shut it down. So this is my whole point. If you don't take care of what's going on in the lower courts, and especially if the conservative justices, even when they do take it up, don't categorically rip it to shreds. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a manifestation of let a thousand lawsuits bloom. It's death by a thousand ACLU lawsuits. And it shuts down. I mean, big stuff. I'm talking about election maps. North Carolina's, a, I mean, we're, we, you know, they're going to mandate the most favorable drawing of Democrat maps. We lost the governorship in North Carolina because of a radical Fourth Circuit opinion that should have never stood. The Supreme Court should have put a state on it, but didn't. Supreme Court probably would never have issued that opinion, but they're not stopping it because Roberts doesn't want to look too extreme. But the problem is his definition of extremism, his whole political barometer is defined by the D.C. legal culture. And he's right. The Supreme Court shouldn't be overtly political. But if the lower courts are going to be 50 light years to the left political – you're going to have to get them 50 light years back to the right just to reach that equilibrium. I'm sorry. That's just a reality. And not that the Supreme Court needs to get involved in the other branches. I'm not advocating supremacy. I'm saying they should undo the supremacy of the lower courts. Now, obviously, Congress should do it. You know, who would have ever thought we had to pry to the Supreme Court to do it? But nonetheless, they're not doing it. So if we're going to put our faith in justices, I want them to be very clear on that. Now, I want to get back to what my remedies are, what I want to do with the lower courts and why it's so important in some of the other cases on immigration, stuff going on in the lower courts. I want to get back to that. But before we lose our train of thought, I want to get to Kavanaugh. This is why some of us are concerned. Now that you have that background on what what is going on in the courts and what we need in a justice and what we need to redress – Now you can understand better my concern. It's not that he's not mainly or almost exclusively an an originalist in his thought. Not that he is not mainly with us on on most of the key issues. Not certainly not that he's a suitor or or unlikely even to be a Kennedy, even though he clerked for him. And you know, I guess somehow we're not allowed to pick Thomas or Scalia clerks. We have to pick Kennedy clerks. um, You know, for these two picks so far. Uh, but no, he'll be he'll be at least as good as Roberts, and and likely, likely, but not guaranteed, a little better than Roberts. How much better we don't know. But here's where it comes in the bullet points, and I'm going to link to this in show notes. My perspective on Kavanaugh, on you know, I'm not just trying to cherry pick from a 12 year record. Oh, I don't like this, or you could have done this, or you, you know. It's that it creates a pattern that validates a concern we have that – not that he'll be bad, but that he won't fill that vacuum that we quite need to rip out that cancer, that judicial legal cancer from the ACLU and the lower courts. And it's not bad. It's actually on net better to confirm him than no one, but it's still a lost opportunity that I believe relative to someone like certainly Mike Lee, but but even in Amy Barrett, and especially because I felt Amy would have had a lot of good political collateral damage to the left that would have literally won the election for us based on it. Um, and it's a very sad loss of an opportunity. 
let's I don't know which case to start off but, 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 but let's start off with um the case with the atheist. And this is a classic example and now you'll know exactly what concerns me. So this well-known atheist goes ahead and sues a couple of years ago this guy named Newdow, Newdow v. Roberts. He is sued to take out the words so help me God from the presidential oath. Okay? And he got standing in a district court and it went to the appeals court, D.C., U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia, went before this three-judge panel, and all of them rule like, no, you're, you're nuts. This, this certainly doesn't violate the Establishment Clause. And um, Kavanaugh was, of course, no different. And you know, someone of his caliber is never going to say something that absurd that that violates the Establishment Clause, that I'm not worried about that. But he went out of his way, whereas the other conservatives said very clearly, and he should never get standing because this is the epitome of the problem, right? This is what makes a court, even when it rules on constitutional issues, if you believe they could do that, judicial review, this is what transmogrifies it into a, a supreme body that's a super legislature, where they could just rule on abstract issues without a valid grievance. And how in the world could someone have a valid grievance that I don't like an oath of office that the president is making? It's only one person. It doesn't hurt you. The words cannot kill you. I mean, like, how do you get standing for that? But Kavanaugh wrote a separate opinion to explicitly say, yes, he has standing. And he misread Supreme Court precedent and was way too bullish on that. Folks, th this is not just, all right, you could have gone stronger. This is what allows them to keep coming back. So you swat it down on the merits here, but they'll hit you in a thousand similar cases where it's slightly different on the merits, but should never get standing. None of these cases should get standing. None of them. None of them should get standing. I don't like the Ten Commandments. I don't like – you're not forced to do anything. That need – any true originalist, we, we would have five – we want – we need five justices on the Supreme Court that will say there is never standing to sue if there is no tangible grievance. And, and, and feeling excluded or stigma or uh, – I don't know, creeped out and uncomfortable, that's not an injury in fact, okay? That needs to be made very clear. And if we can't do that, then these, just, then these picks are worthless. See what I'm saying? This is where 99% is really 0%. But let's continue. Let's continue. With the contraception case. Right? With Priest for Life. Again, mo most, most of the courts, including the D.C. Circuit, I think everything, everyone except for the Eighth Circuit, ruled in favor of the contraception mandate. That, that the government could force you against your will to cover something in your private compensation package that um, is against your, your uh, religious uh, principles. You know, is, I mean, the, the ultimate violation of the First Amendment. So, you know, the D.C. Court of Appeals was no different, and conservative justices went and dissented. And in this in bank, this is in bank ruling, um, Kavanaugh, Brown, and Henderson dissented. Except here's the difference. Brown and Henderson made it very clear that the entire – the premise that the that 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 there's a compelling interest to mandate seamless coverage is just not true that there's no there's no interest but he he did not sign on to that and he wrote separately and specifically said that there's quote a compelling interest in facilitating a woman's access to contraception again they're hiding behind that he says that the supreme court says that but the supreme court doesn't say that it says that there might – first of all, they didn't even rule on it. They assumed – it's a different legal term. They assumed that there's a general 
compelling interest in generally doing it, but not to have those specific plaintiffs. Every religious organization, there's no, you know, it doesn't do anything for you. In general, broadly, you have to show like, you know, for example, you know, let's say someone says it's against my religion. Let's say there's a military draft. We bring back the draft. They say it's against my religion to go to war. So there you could say there's a compelling interest even to force those plaintiffs because then everyone's going to do it and you're not going to have – I mean you don't have a country left. But I mean there's no way you could say that. that that's ridiculous. Right? That's, that's a frivolous thing. But he nonetheless echoed it. Now ultimately he ruled, ruled on the merits that it still wasn't good enough because according to Rifra, even if it's a compelling government interest, it, you had to have used the, quote, least compelling method of – least, least – um, coercive method uh, that that least burdens that fundamental right, and they didn't do that. But again, that's the beard stroking. That's the hemming and hawing that makes it so much easier for them to come back. And indeed, that's why after Hobby Lobby, we got these lawsuits to begin with. You think Hobby Lobby would have shut this down? It didn't. And the other side basically is winning to this day. And in fact, a Pennsylvania federal judge last year forced the Trump administration to continue the contraception mandate. This is why our wins aren't wins because of people like Kavanaugh. Because they're too into the beard stroking. And this gets me to Obamacare and Seven Sky V. Holder in 2011. You know, Kavanaugh wrote a dissent opining that the individual mandate of Obamacare could not be challenged in court because under the Anti-Injunction Act of 1867, no lawsuit can be brought until the plaintiff is actually forced to pay the tax, which in this case, it wasn't until, I guess, 2015. Now, you might say, Daniel, isn't this what you champion? This is great, you know, especially you don't even like so much the judicial offense using the courts to strike things down and um, you know, and you're very into having a valid, ripe um, grievance that you know should have proper standing. I'm, I'm all for that. And, and if he viewed it this way, even if you know Thomas Alito and you know the others and Scalia didn't, I'd be okay with that. But it's the what he did to arrive at the conclusion. He's right. There's just one problem: the individual mandate is not a tax. This is not just like some technical nerdy thing. Like, yeah, it's frustrating. He frustrated our ability to overturn Obamacare and pave the road for Roberts' opinion. That in itself is pretty ironic that we're choosing him as the hero when you know we all complained about Roberts. And he, he – by the way, he advocated for Roberts and said there was no difference between Roberts and Ludig at the time when Bush was – Going back and forth, and that in itself is a big problem because that cuts to the core of what I'm talking about, that the FedSoc people in the White House that are making these decisions and including what I suspect people like Kavanaugh himself, they don't recognize the difference between some of these others and Thomas, and that is the problem. They don't recognize that. If you don't recognize the difference between Ludig and Roberts, you have a problem. And so it's, it's, it's kind of a double irony there that he, he, he helped pick Roberts. He helped serve as the basis of Robert's, you know, Obamacare mandate as a tax. But again, this is something that he needs to be asked, not just because it's a bygone technical nerdy thing. There's something very important here. If you're saying that by a regulation could always be packaged as a tax, that means there's literally nothing government can't do to us, the federal government. Because think about it. Anything that's out of bounds, what would you say is out of bounds that everyone would agree? Okay, government can't say – there's no way government from its enumerated powers can say every human being has to um, you know, go on the treadmill three times a week. No, no one would say that. But under this, what you could say now is, okay, but Congress has a taxing power, so therefore they could say, well, if you don't do it, I'm going to tax you $100. And anyone with a brain who's not Amelia Bedelia knows that that's not what a tax is. That's a clear coercive mandate regulation. It's not a tax to raise general revenue. It's a way of leveraging a coercion of the mandate. Um, it's, it's a regulation. It's a mandate. That's very disturbing. Now, ultimately, he didn't rule on the merits like that. But if it's enough of a tax to invoke the Anti-Injunction Act, that, that's a problem. We need to know about that. 
And finally, no one else has made this point. I know I made it on last podcast, but for those of you who haven't heard, juxtapose this to the atheist case. So really, really, Brett, you mean to tell me, you mean to tell me that it's a government interest. I'm sorry, that someone who is being forced by the Buddha government in a very individualized way to purchase a private product, something that is the most out-of-bounds thing imaginable, that didn't get standing. But a guy could sue against, so help me God, in the presidential oath of office and that gets standing? He needs to be asked about that. that that's, that's very disturbing. You know, finally... And I'm sure there's other stuff out there. I just haven't had time. I'm just using all the stuff that's more public in the debate now that other people have gone through. I want to get to immigration. Generally speaking, I don't have anything bad with him on immigration. And in fact, all my friends that are very tough on immigration and and then you have you know, Ann Coulter and, and Laura Ingram. I know Tom Cotton's office. They're very bullish on him from this one in the weeds case on L1B visas where he kind of stood up for the American worker. But, you know, that's fine, but the case didn't speak to the fundamental stolen sovereignty of illegals demanding rights and coming in and getting standing and, you know, right to immigrate. Not not to say Kavanaugh believes that. I'm just saying you don't see – it's not like he dealt with that. They're a little bit – they're putting too much stock in that. But here's what I did see from him, that isolated is not a problem, but taken with the other pattern – and based on what I'm talking about with the courts, the fact that they keep coming back for more, and if you don't uproot it categorically, root and branch, it, it grows back you know a thousand times and you know instantaneously in the lower courts and it winds up being upheld, is the famous Garza case I wrote about and yelled about all last year with illegal alien teenagers who often aren't even teenagers lie about their age breaking into the country and demanding access to abortion. So they, um, this woman demands access to abortion, and originally the district court, which is terrible in D.C., granted her right. Um, a three-judge panel that included Kavanaugh um, overturned it, said you don't, and then they heard it in bonk. Which was smart because in bank means the entire panel, and if you look at the panel of DC Circuit, it's it's like you know roughly six to three liberal, and all the bad guys are young. Obama appointed them, so you know it's it's really bad. Um, so they overturned it, and you know said that they have a right to an abortion. She got the abortion. Now, the original three judge panel ones who ruled the other way, including Kavanaugh, they wrote dissents on the in Bank ruling. Kavanaugh writes now. There's two. There's two issues here. Kavanaugh focused on the abortion angle, not the immigration angle. That basically, even if this were an American citizen, you're radically expanding the abortion jurisprudence. Meaning, even if you agree to Casey v. Planned Parenthood, and you say it's a fundamental right and we can't burden it, but. Here, they're trying. The government was trying to say, "Look, we could release to a third party." Meaning, it wasn't even like they were blocking it. They were just saying, "Release her to the third party." We just don't want to have to be forced to directly violate our conscience and drive her to an abortion clinic. And the judges, the other judges, were so insane. They're saying, "No, even that's a burden of a fundamental right." Where you know we don't treat a real fundamental right like that. We burden the, the Second Amendment beyond belief. You know, but abortion is like beyond that. And that was his point. And and it's a very valid point. The problem is there was another dissent. And that was Karen Henderson's dissent. And Karen Henderson's dissent spoke to the core of not only this issue, but all the issues that we're addressing on immigration that's destroying our country. And she was like, wait a minute. I thought we have 100 years of settled law that an illegal alien is, is, is as if they're not even standing in our country. They're considered outside. They have no jurisdiction. They have nothing. They have no standing. They have no right to anything, even if it were a fundamental right. Heck, legal immigrants don't have a fundamental right to 
Second Amendment to donate to political campaigns, certainly illegals, but, but like, what are you talking about? This doesn't even get it off the ground. Now, Henderson signed on to Kavanaugh's dissent, but you know, because also agreed on the abortion angle, but Kavanaugh did not sign on to her angle. And that's very disturbing. Now, you might say, well, I don't know, could you really read too much into that? Is that really a fair argument? There's two reasons why it's fair. Number one, as Karen Henderson mentioned, it's not just a matter of there's multiple ways to attack the majority opinion. It's not like there's A or B. There's A1 and A2. The entire abortion question is built upon the immigration question. This is the antecedent. You know what I mean? Like this is the whole problem. The left will come in and say, do I have the right to rape Republican women in this circumstance? And and imagine if we started beard stroking about the circumstance. Like that's not a matter of, oh, I didn't address – like you can't do that. You have to address the root. You have to address it, especially when it is that antithetical and that damaging – to our history and traditions, as Karen Henderson said very beautifully in that dissent, one of the most important dissents of the last couple of years in all the federal courts, it, it's rooted in an ancient custom of nation states. I mean it's, it's something you really can't uproot. Um, so that's number one. But number two, if you look at the oral arguments, I'm not going to get into it too deeply. Clearly, Kavanaugh was agreeing to the premise the entire time. He was pushing this third-party thing. Well, release to a third party, release to a third party. Dude, you're being too clever by half. Stop it. You're, you're right. You're right. The other side's being so intransigent, intransigent and radical. They're not. But but they're not entitled to that. Oh, illegals, you could sue us for this. You could get this, but not that. You can't get anything. This is what allows them to keep coming back. See see the thesis I'm putting together. I'm not. I'm not trying to isolate. Oh, you weren't conservative enough on this. You weren't – I didn't like what you did on this. It's a pattern. Kavanaugh, like most of the people on the list, they're, most of the people in the Ivy League circuit, even the conservatives, Scalia and Thomas being the exception, they were you know, Harvard and Yale. Um, but the, the D.C. culture, he's a creature of D.C., of the Bush administration. This is how they think. If you didn't have liberal judges, they'd be great, but we do, and they're not going to uproot this stuff or not enough. We could have done better. We could have done better. Now, let me be very clear. I'm not suggesting that you know we should scuttle him and that he wouldn't be better than you know not filling the seat. Obviously. Right now, there's four ironclad leftists, and you know there's no way to overpower those four without appointing someone. So you know that's that's fine. But just understand that we, we need to talk to him about it. And and you know, by the way, you know, I know we have some listeners that 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 work for some senators, and and you know who you are. Thank you for reaching out to me. One office did reach out to. Um, you know, for some suggestions, for questions when the senator meets, and that's what we need to do, and ask some of these questions. Like, you know, if if Kavanaugh is who they say he is, I I want to, we should be able to talk to him about like, hey, buddy, like, let's we're not going to talk about specific cases, but but you get what's going on in the lower courts, like you understand that, you know, what's your view of the Supreme Court's role if we're going to make it supreme, in terms of everything, you know. And a lower court is doing radical things. Should that be allowed to fester for a long time, or should that be taken up right away? And you know, but what people don't understand is people think Roberts was a mistake, like oh, like like a suitor, um, or you know, some people think he, I don't know, Obama had something over him. He was cheating with his wife, or and, and they, they miss the point. Roberts is what plagues everyone. To a certain degree, it's just that he has it a little bit more, partly because he's chief justice, and he's a, he's a beard stroker, and he views it his role to protect the institutional integrity. Now, those who, which is why, you know, I, I I warned, I said my fear, and it still hasn't been disproven. I think it will depend on the issue. Um, my fear of Gorsuch and, and Kavanaugh certainly is that he he'll be like Roberts would have been. Had he been an associate justice, which is to say better than he is now, but um, 
not not where Thomas is, and because everyone is afflicted with this disease to some degree, where they they take on the premise of the left, legitimize it, validate it a little bit, and they are taken in by the culture. Keep in mind a big part of what they have done, they enshrined into civil rights era stuff. And Thomas has shown over the years, he'll like over he'll say like this entire thing that you enshrined in civil rights over 60 years is built on garbage. It's not a shred of legitimacy to it. He'll write opinions like that. Um, most of these people, part of that DC elite culture, they're, they're, they're not going to do it. Even if they're thinking it, they're not going to be bold enough to do it. I love the way Ron DeSantis, Congressman DeSantis, put out his statements. He put out a different statement than almost all of his colleagues, like fawning. He did the same statement he did with, um, with uh, um, Gorsuch, and he basically said, look, Scalia and Thomas are the gold standard. In this case, you know, Scalia's gone, so he said Thomas. And you know, the the thing about them wasn't just that they were originalists. All these people say they're originalists. It's that he was bold. He was willing to thumb his nose at the legal culture. And that's what made him clear. And he was like, you know, this guy appears brilliant and well accomplished. Whether he's bold, we'll see. We hope so. That's basically what DeSantis said. And I, I applaud him for that. Um, you know, let's not fool ourselves. Now, you might say, look, even if we ask these questions, we're not going to get straightforward answers. Fine. But my, my bigger point is not even so much to get clarity from him, much less scuttle him. It's more to that, that we're not like Leon Lett dancing in the end zone. I mean, like I wrote in my, um, my column today, kind of explaining some of this from the lower courts. It's like the verse in Proverbs uh, 27.1, do not boast for tomorrow, for you do not know what the day will bear. Don't think you won the courts because you haven't. And, and, and I'm explaining why. But let's just be honest with ourselves here. You know, the, most, very, unless you know otherwise, they're not going to be a Thomas. But come on, Daniel. You know what? We, don't, we really don't have Thomases. Okay, fine. But then don't tell me you're going to fix the judiciary this way and ignore my other remedies and the other need to you know, fight back because it's not going to change fundamentally. Around the margins, you'll slow some things down, and then the Democrats will get back into power inevitably, and it will go back again. I mean th- th- this is the problem. They're not uprooting it. They always engage illegitimate premises. And this is part of my problem. It's it's clearly Robert Stick as Chief Justice, but it's it is in varying degrees with the other non-Thomas justices, and maybe on some minor degree with Thomas himself once in a while that it, it eats away at you. It's very tough when when the lower courts are so radical, but they don't get any reprisal for that because it's cool. It's in, in vogue in the legal culture to do that. You're allowed to do that in their circles, so they don't get flack for it. If the Supreme Court were to really do its job and be originalist, they would have to every minute be putting stays on this stuff. And my fear is that these guys are just too scared of that. And you know that that's that's my broader point. And 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 um, I don't think I'm going to have enough time to get through all the crazy lower court cases and how Gorsuch's opinion in Demaya, where he screwed us, is growing legs. I wrote about that. I'll link that in show notes. Also, my remedy for the um, for the lower courts, not just to end nationwide injunctions, not just jurisdiction stripping, but I have one possible way. There's nothing we can do, but it's just a way that possibly we could kind of wink, nod, influence some of the justices. There's something called circuit assignments where individual justices have jurisdiction over circuits. And they could put unilaterally put um, upon request put stays on lower court injunctions even without the rest of the court taking it up if it's their circuit. And it's complicated right now. Kennedy controlled the ninth, so of course he would never do it. That there's going to be a vacancy. So either Kavanaugh fills it, or likely Roberts reassigns it based on seniority. Who's the most senior member? Thomas. Right now, Thomas has. Uh, circuit assignment over the 11th, not too much bad stuff comes out of that circuit. So that's why you don't really see him doing it that much. 
I'm really curious and I really hope Thomas would take his concurrence to heart and he could shut a lot of this down unilaterally. That's an interesting thing. Um, I'll write, you know, I'm going to write about that, talk about that at a future date when we have more time. Um, but, you know, I just want to close by saying, <clears throat> by just coming full circle to Amy Barrett. Look, could I say with a straight face, 100%, I know she would have been Clarence Thomas? No. Um, I couldn't tell you 100%. Obviously, we supported Mike Lee, but, you know, it was clear they never seriously considered him because we can't have nice things. Um, we just can't. I mean, I'm just telling you, the legal conservative movement is the problem. They are the problem. The people advising Trump, it's not Trump's fault. He's not going to know this better than they do, and you know, he'll take their word for it. Although there are a couple things that bother me from what I'm hearing. He's very into this Ivy League pedigree for all his pol- populist talk, and it's it's not not that we should nick someone for it, but I mean, it would would have been really nice to have someone from Notre Dame, ne- Amy. So the thing about Amy is this: I never knew her at all, but. I got to – in preparation for the final four, I wanted to learn about them. I spent time reading her writings, and she has a lot of writings. Um, Kavanaugh has almost no writings. Now he has 12 years of 300 court opinions. Now the conventional wisdom is – well, you know, and, and this is why, one of the reasons why I think the other side won the day. And by the way, as Levin says, there's a lot we don't know. Um, Levin, I know, knows a lot about this. This was the nastiest whip operation I've ever seen for a Supreme Court justice and might might have ever been. And that should tell you a lot about the people pushing for him um, and, and the stuff they were sa- saying about some other people that would have been better picks. But we'll leave it at that. Um, you know, they, they used our argument against us by saying, well, you always want a long paper trail here. You're never going to get a longer paper trail than Kavanaugh, at least not at that age where you want someone young enough. Um, to be on the court for many years, and Amy Barrett was just appointed to the Seventh Circuit, and before that, you know, she was just kind of uh, a professor, you know, a legal academic. But you know, and most of the legal academics are bad. But you know, the best people in the world are the legal academics that are good. Um, there's very few of them. Michael Paulson is one of them. Like, oh my gosh, for him to be on the court. I mean, think about someone like me. You know. Obviously, it couldn't be me, but someone like me who's you know more you know has the training and is 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 a, is a lawyer and everything. Um, you know my heart and soul. I mean, I've written hundreds of articles. I've written a book. You know exactly where I am. You don't need opinions from me. You know, it's much more telling than circuit court opinions on most issues. And Amy, if you read her writings, she's like me. I'm just telling you. She is – that is that Thomas Mullet. She railed against judicial supremacy. She talked about Congress's role in inter- interpretation. Um, she is the type that would be bold. She never spent a day in D.C. And what I love is that she was never even a member of the stupid Federalist Society. I know I'm going to take a lot of flack for saying that, but um, she actually – later on, she just became a token member just to have access to the students, she said. Um, but ba- – that in conjunction with the type of Catholic that she was, believe me, for the very reason the left feared her. And I know they'll say they're going crazy over Kavanaugh, but if you look carefully, they're really not. They're going crazy. That was baked into the cake because they lost the seat and it's devastating to them. And no matter what, it will be shifted somewhat to the right. Um, but they're just saying, oh, you Mueller. They're, pig- they're, not, they're not doing the borking like they would have done with Amy. And that would have been perfect. See, now they have to bring out Ken Starr and impeachment, and he picked it for Mueller and a D.C. swamp monster. It's so much easier. I agree with Nate Silver that it's easier for the red state Democrats to oppose him, whereas with her, she's like your mom from the Midwest, never spent a day in D.C., loved by her students, um, no baggage. And even – see, part of the good thing about not having a paper trail is she was the one consensus that even people like me would have loved, but – on the other hand, it's not like she had like Bill Pryor type of record where he said a whole paper trail of Roe v. Wade is an abomination and everything. Um, so, you know, this notion of, oh, Murkowski and Collins, they would have griped about her. But if we would have been willing to fight and had a fight, I can't say 100%, but 80% we would have won. They would have been very hard-pressed to vote against her. And remember, Joe Donnelly voted for her. He's from Indiana. 
and and what's his name and Joe Manchin. See, with Kavanaugh, they could just say he's a stupid swamp monster and whatever. I'm not saying he deserves it. I'm just saying they could demagogue that. Whereas with Amy, what is he going to say? She's too pro-life. It's West Virginia, and Joe Manchin himself pretends to be pro-life, even though he's not. But you know, you know what I mean. Like he'd be on. We would have had a fight over religion and principle, and the left would have went nuts. Um, and again, some of it also is just the packaging. It was perfect packaging. Um, here you have you know an attractive young soft-spoken female. It's not like Robert Bork where they're able to Bork. They would have totally looked like horrible. It would have electrified our base. It would have g- brought over people in the middle that were losing. And the fight itself would have been worthwhile as an ends to itself just because the electoral consequences, even if you would have lost it. But I don't think we would have. Between the red state Democrats and and I don't think you could lose you know McCain's pledging to come back at this point now who knows so you could you could afford to lose one of the two anyway assuming that's true and they'd be very hard pressed but you got to fight but this is the culture and unfortunately Trump gets bought into it of the people in the White House and of Mitch McConnell they don't want to fight. Mitch McConnell always wants the path to least resistance, and ironically, sometimes he picks worse things. Now, you're not going to have resistance in the sense that all of them, the dominoes fell. Like, you know, even if none of the Democrats vote, Murkowski and Collins right away are going to vote, which should, by the way, tell you something. Murkowski said something like, yeah, at least it wasn't some of the other nominees. That should tell you a lot that they're not that concerned about him. But, you know, but. You know, they're going to be able to paint this as a cronious pick, and it's not going to electrify our base. It's not going to have that intended. You know, sometimes when you try to be political and not principled, you lose the politics. And that's the classic Mitch McConnell. Everyone thinks he's such an artist, but that's his shtick. It's always no path to least resistance. And I understand if you don't, if you downright have the Democrats in control of the majority when you have a Republican president. You, you know, there's a limit to what you can do. I get it, that you, to what you could win. But you got to be willing. Sometimes you got to be willing, you know, if it's a 100% thing to make a five-yard pass and it's an 80% thing to toss the, throw the touchdown, sometimes you got to be willing to throw the touchdown. Especially here because it's not like we're likely to lose the majority anyway because of the Senate map, no matter what. And you could always come back after the election and nominate someone like a Kavanaugh or Hardiman or whatever. Um, it's not like you're losing that. But, the, but what I'm telling you is the fight would have gone a long way in influencing the election. We would have a national discussion about natural law and our founding values and Judeo-Christian values. Finally, we'd have a fight on this. Really? So now I have to be Mueller, impeachment, Ken Starr, and, and – Please don't get me wrong. It's not Kavanaugh's fault. I'm not blaming him for that. But if you want to talk about confirmability, this is what they're they're doing. And and, and that's the thing. I it just I would have loved the fight like that. Um you know, but Trump's into this Ivy League pedigree and it's very disappointing. It's it's very much against his base. And uh Picking Amy would have really been a coup. That really would have been very Trumpian the way he campaigned. Um, and like I said, I mean, in my view, it's like I don't even care so much about the pick anyway because if we do, if we do judicial reform, we'll be saved. If not, we're screwed anyway, irrespective of the Supreme Court vacancies in my view. So you may as well pick the most electrifying political advantage out of, out of the pick. And – you know, I don't know. I, I just think it's a shame, but you know, it it is what it is. It is what it is. It's just it's just you you could not get someone better in terms of packaging. You know, it's not like having a Roy Moore or something. You know, oh Daniel, this is some Neanderthal. I mean, she's very well spoken, very intelligent, um, comes across really well. Again, very soft spoken. I don't know. I I just. I really, really liked her, but, you know, it is it is what it is. Anyway, there, there's a lot more going on, and unfortunately, I just don't have time to talk about it, write about it. 
Um, just going to flag for you. I'm going to try to put in show notes. Ron DeSantis <clears throat> held a terrific hearing on the threat of the Muslim Brotherhood. He had Zudi Jasser there, um, one of the only good Muslim activists that, that are anti-Sharia and anti-Islamic immigration. And he really just riveting, riveting testimony. Um, good job done there. And, you know, that's probably the most important thing that the legislative branch of government did this week is hold that hearing. They're not doing any – there's no other news there um, because it's all about the courts because Congress doesn't exist. Um, let's see what else. There's also, you know, again, a lot of stuff on immigration and get to sanctuary cities. We're going to have to say this for another time. Um, just want to go back one thing before we close to the courts. Um just to uh, one of our listeners and just responding to you, Jared, Jared, one of our writers writes to me and says, it seems like you're, you're disappointed with Kavanaugh on Obamacare, but you know, isn't your whole thing not using the courts for broad political activism and, you know, that type of stuff. So a couple, couple of things on that. Um, and I mentioned this in, you know, last week and, and Monday, and, and it's in my book as well. Um, I'm all I'm totally fine with shaking hands and saying we won't use the courts for labor, big government type of mandates to strike that down. And you won't use it to strike our things down and just use it and just deal with that in the political branches. But as I noted on Monday, my belief is I believe in judicial review. It's just people don't understand what judicial review is. I believe in judicial review. I believe in executive review, and I believe in legislative review. We all have an obligation to uphold the Constitution. The courts are one avenue to go to if you have a grievance, um, and it's really individualized, and it's legitimate, and it's a legitimate constitutional value. Now – the notion that you could strike down the whole Obamacare, again, I just went along with that because what's good for the goose is good for the gander. Um, you know, look, if we're going to strike down everything else with supremacy, then you better believe we're going to strike that down. But, you know, as it relates at least the individual mandate, if you're going to tell me that you must purchase a private product, or put another way, not only could we regulate every activity, but we're going to regulate an inactivity. Right, that, that gets to the core of, of the declaration. If there's anything, and that's an individualized thing, I shouldn't have to be forced into this. I should be able to look for alternatives without having to get hosed, especially from those of us who don't get subsidized and have to pay 20000 a year on insurance. So I shouldn't have to do that. Now, now you were asking about well, okay, but didn't you say, you know, it's not like a legislature or executive veto where it's struck down? I, I would, none of us were suggesting that. It's just the body politic views it as such. I, I'm, I'm not being inconsistent, you know, you know, with the things that I don't like on immigration, on marriage, on abortion, um, and to apply it there too. You're right. It would only apply to those plaintiffs. Um, but the point is it would be up to the other branches then in my view, but likely what they would do because this is what they do is they don't push back. And it's not that it strikes down the law. It's that you know John Doe got a ruling that he doesn't have to pay the, f the fine. So basically it winds up being that you know government stops enforcing it and no one else and we'll all be off the hook. Meaning mechanically speaking, courts don't strike things down. It's only viewed as such because the other branches never push back. But if they tried to push back and gum up the works in other ways, then you know it, you could start limiting it, limiting the outcome of that case. And I would be fine for them doing it, but I do believe that from a constant. But again, if you're a judge, if you're on, you know, a lot of people are saying, well, if you don't believe in judicial supremacy, what do you do if you're a judge and you know? Um, California legislature or Congress passes something that – or you know, executive policy that plainly violates the Constitution. What are you going to do? No. If it's a real valid standing and a real case, I will give that plaintiff uh, – I will rule with the Constitution, constitutional supremacy. But again, not because, oh, you must listen to me because I'm the final word. It's because I believe that's what the Constitution says, and you better show me how I'm wrong. But – you know, the other branches could push back. So I'm not being inconsistent in that sense. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, because most people don't understand this and it's kind of like an all or nothing thing, like struck down or not struck down, if that's how we're going to treat it. So then, yes, I would rather just get rid of this entire notion that you could hear such cases and on net we'd benefit from it. But I'm just saying, ideally, that's not what our founders meant. It wasn't this polarizing thing. Oh, could they strike down or not strike down? That's not what it was. It's that you always have the right, you know, like let's say government passes a law and says anyone named Daniel Horowitz has to pay an extra 10% taxes. You better believe I have the right to go to a court and, and demand relief. Now, the idea is that's not the only way. The idea would be the states and, you know, the executive branch would try not to enforce it and, you know, the media and we would, we would all together say it's unconstitutional. Because it is unconstitutional, not just because the court is the sole and final arbiter in that. Anyway, I went long on that. Um, let me know your feedback, your thoughts on this. You could always email me, tweet me at Arm Conservative. Until next time, God bless. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience.